Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hi, I'm Mark Brumley, and welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. Today, our podcast is being taken over by Carl Olson from Catholic World Report. Carl and I haven't had a conversation in a while, and I thought it'd be great for us to have a CWR discussion. Carl, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's good to keep uh, keep track of your employees from time to time, so I'm glad <laughs> that we could, we could have this conversation. We're keeping track yeah, of what, what's going on, man. Well, there's a, obviously a lot, a lot happening. It's, uh, it's been fascinating to me to see the the shift in the news. Obviously, the news in Ukraine is is huge, and obviously it needs to be covered. And it's 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 a, a global uh, situation that's affecting the lives of a lot of a lot of people. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting to me how quickly we've we've suddenly transitioned, at least my perspective, from COVID. Suddenly now we're, you know, there was an emphasis for a little while on what was going on in Canada and some of these things. And then all of a sudden, you know, these things drop off the news. And I, I as an editor of a news journal, it, it find, it's fascinating to me how these things kind of shift and move like that. But um, but the situation in Ukraine, I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, as you know, and probably some listeners know, um, my wife and I and our family have been in a Ukrainian Catholic parish for well, over 20 years since the late 1990s. And um, so the, a lot of this has hit very close to home. We've had uh, we have a number of people in our parish who have uh, friends. Uh, not sure about family, family, but um, <clears throat> certainly friends in Ukraine. And um, it's been you know a pretty emotional time for a lot of people. Uh, very difficult, especially with things shifting so quickly, right. almost on an hour to hour basis, not knowing what's going on uh, with war, people getting killed. So. That's first and foremost, you know, on my mind, uh, these really tragic and difficult situations that put some things in, in perspective uh, for us, especially here uh, in the United States. Well, given the nature of what's going on in Ukraine, it, it is the case that anything we say here will be, you know, out of date very quickly. I mean, it's a, it's a very volatile situation. Uh, so, but one thing we're confident of, we can continue to pray for the people of Ukraine because they're going to need prayers for quite some time, regardless of how things unfold in the next next few days or the next few weeks or even the next few months. Uh, so when people may be listening to this, uh, they may be, you know, situation may well may be well beyond where it is today. So uh, you, you mentioned um, Ukrainian Catholics. I think a lot of people think of Ukraine as as a country where Christianity is orthodox, it's orthodoxy. And yeah, you talked about the, Ukrainian Catholics. So what Yeah, and the dominant certainly that is the dominant religion uh, body of believers in 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 Ukraine. And I don't know the exact percentage. I do know that Catholics uh, between Eastern Catholics and Western Rite Catholics uh, they make up about 10% of the Ukrainian population. And from what I understand, though, that 10% has uh, has a really significant influence in Ukraine, probably disproportionate even to that percentage for various reasons. And I don't pretend here to have a, you know, have a really inside knowledge of all those complexities. Uh, my pastor was over in Ukraine about, uh, was about two years ago. It's actually not long, 
must have been over two and a half years ago before the COVID, but he was there for about a, a month. And he said one thing that really struck him in being Ukraine was just how overtly religious society was in many ways. Now, he wasn't he wasn't uh, in any way saying that things were perfect. I mean, I think we know by now that Ukraine, like like every country, but Ukraine has had a lot of problems with corruption and political instability. And, and it's a very complex history. But he said he was really um, struck by just the 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 presence of the Catholic Church in Ukraine, uh, a lot of things going on, a lot of robust uh, activity in churches and in other institutions, whether it be schools or, or other things. So uh, he said it was it was very, very different from being here in Western Oregon, where religious, uh, public religious uh, signs are not very evident, obviously. Um, but yeah, the Predominantly, Ukraine is Orthodox, but of course, as you as you all know, and our many of our reader listeners here know, it's a very complicated situation because you have different factions of Orthodox, and now it's even more complicated because this war has caused further splits, and now you have certain Orthodox groups condemning other Orthodox groups, and and it's really I uh, won't won't try to untangle that here, but it I think one of the most fascinating element fascinating elements stepping back. Um, it is this religious aspect, which is significant. Uh, we have a couple of pieces, uh, Catholic World Report, recent pieces on this. George Weichel wrote a great piece, and Catholic News Agency, who we, we run a lot of their news briefs, had a very good piece there about how the uh, Ukraine conflict is reshaping relations between these churches. So I think that's something um, that I've been trying to keep in, in mind and follow as best I can. Um, again, the history is just... Uh, we're not talking about a few decades of political history. I mean, just the last three or four decades of this, of history in Ukraine is, uh, you'd have to be, you know, full-time specialist, but we're talking about centuries, right? So um, it's well, really you know, fascinating. Just, just for a little bit of context, uh, and I know this seems obvious to some of us because we, we move in this world all the time. So, uh, you know, the expression inside baseball, a lot of this, although we're not experts, at least I'm not, when it comes to Ukraine or Orthodoxy or even Eastern Catholicism, uh, we do move in this 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 world, and and for a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, even the the sort of rudimentary knowledge base that we have for moving in this world, they don't necessarily share. So I'm going to say something that may seem to some listeners like, well, why why are you even talking about such a basic thing as that? But for other listeners, it, it will be helpful. Just situate for us, Carl, when we talk about Orthodox Christianity and Catholic Christianity, and then even within Catholic Christianity, we talk about Eastern Catholicism. What are those distinctions that, that are being made there? Well, the you know historically, you know, we go back a, a thousand years, and there's kind of that convenient date of 1054. Um, but I think in different parts of the world, it's it's it, it unraveled or it kind of unrolled, so to speak, uh, in different ways. Um, a couple of things that might be of interest that people don't know is that the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church is the largest of the Eastern Catholic uh, churches, um, which are are. are many there's like you know 20 some different rights but even that's kind of uh, <laughs> debated as far as how that's all broken up and so forth um but really the the big issue has to do with authority and recognizing rome 
and the Petrine office. That, of course, is distinctly Catholic, and both Eastern and Western Catholics uh, adhere to that and, and see the Pope as the head apostle or the head successor of the head apostle Peter, etc. Um, <clears throat> whereas in Orthodoxy, you have a really wide range of attitudes towards that, I think it's fair to say. I think this is accurate where you have, among some Orthodox, a very anti-papal approach, a very anti-Catholic approach, whereas with some Orthodox, it's very, very different. It's very uh, open to an ecumenical discussion uh, with Catholics. And there's, you know, it's just, it's, I've really experienced a wide range of this in my various um conversations, dealings with, with various Orthodox, everything from, you know, pap papists are the antichrist or to, which is more of a, almost a Protestant fundamentalist approach. You see this attitude among some Orthodox and then many Orthodox are just incredibly positively Catholic. Um, and very, in fact, I've talked to many over the years who are very, not just appreciative, but really long for unity, which of course we, we should in the proper, in the proper sense and, and, keeping with Christ's great prayer for unity. So that makes it even more complicated too. And I think one, the last thing I would say about this is one of the big problems over the decades and centuries is that the Russian Orthodox church is, you know, the largest of the Orthodox churches, I think easily in terms of population. And I think also in terms of influence and it's, uh, it tends to be very opposed to the Catholic church uh, on a lot of different levels, right? Both theologically, politically, etc. So that makes things very, very difficult, um, and has for for a long time. So uh, that's yeah, a little I bit. Would, as you say, without trash talking, um, right? Russian right. Orthodoxy. I mean, it is the case that institutionally, the Russian Orthodox Church has, in many ways, uh, been subordinated to the state. You know, yeah. obviously under under the Soviet Union when uh, Christianity was you know, outlawed as a oversimplification, but, but basically uh, suppressed by law. Uh, and then even post fall of the Soviet Union, it's, it is the case that there is a very close <laughs> relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia and the government. So People say, well, if it was if Christianity was outlawed, why was there an Orthodox Church? And outlawed is a little bit, uh, as I say, oversimplification. But it, it's certainly the case that uh, that the communist government of the Soviet Union saw religion as as a negative thing, as a as a threat, and so on. So, uh, to the extent that Russian Orthodoxy was uh, allowed at all, it was it was instrumentalized by the state. Is that would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, I think I think that is accurate from what I know. Again, not, I'm not an expert on, on this topic either. Uh, I would, you know, to point to the complexity of this, for example, <clears throat> I was sent a link a couple of days ago uh, to a, um, a site where you have an appeal of the clergy of the Russian Orthodox Church for reconciliation and ending the war. So within Russian Orthodoxy right now, you have a number of, uh, of priests and I've don't know if we have an, I have a number here. There's, there's a, a great number. I think it's well over a hundred, maybe 150 different priests, uh, archpriests, et cetera, who uh, have signed this. They, they don't want Russia in this war. They don't want this attack on Ukraine. Um, but then obviously you see Putin has the support of key Russian Orthodox 
leaders and members. So, um, you know, I, I, I think I, the thing I would emphasize, and I think you touched on Mark is we shouldn't have a monolithic view of this. I would, I would like it. I would use the parallel of I, when I hear people talk about, Oh, American Protestantism. Right. Okay. <laughs> what, right. what are we talking about now? Obviously there are, there are some differences. That's not an exact parallel. Um, you're going to find certainly a lot more of a, of a unity or similarity across the board within, say, Russian Orthodoxy than you are within American Protestantism. But I think I use that kind of a, as an example because I think we want to avoid, you know, painting with a broad brush, but also to point out that there have been these tensions and you do have a really interesting range of attitudes among Orthodox, not just Russian, uh, towards the Eastern Catholic Churches. I mean, historically, it was one of a lot of antagonism, mm. um, but I think it has in many places has improved a great deal, thankfully. So um, that just continue. That's going to be something that um, will just continue to go on for, for a long time uh, outside of God's uh, God, you know, miraculously changing, I think, which, which is going to take. Well, uh, people are interested in understanding more about uh, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and the history involved. Uh, I would encourage you to pick up a book by Father Aidan Nichols, English Dominican, called Rome and the Eastern Churches, published by Ignatius Press. You can get that Rome and the Eastern Churches. So there's more of a discussion of that. Yes, and I certainly don't want to oversimplify and put everybody who falls in the category of Russian Orthodox in the same camp and say they're all on board with um, the politicalization of Christianity. So that, that would be unfair. Well, Carl, you, you've given us a good uh, sampling of what's going on with CWR with respect to the topic of Ukraine and, and uh, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. What else is happening at CWR these days? Well, like, like uh, every, every, all the other uh, Catholics uh, in the world, we're going through Lent. And so we've had, we have some, I think, some really good pieces on Lent. Uh, we've got a piece up here on uh, the first of a series on Lent and the sacraments by Father Peter Stravinskis, where he's going to go through each of the sacraments and and discuss them in, in uh, terms of Lent specifically. Uh, and, yeah, and then uh, have an interesting little piece from today by Father Charles Fox, who's at um, Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit, on praying the Liturgy of the Hours during Lent. So he gives kind of a um, kind of an enc encouraging uh, push to people to consider taking up the liturgy of the hours or the office uh, and consider praying that throughout Lent. And he gives some background, some helpful tips there, um, some things like that. So, and then uh, each weekend we will be having some pieces on the, the readings for Lent uh, reruns of some things I've done, but also uh, Douglas Bushman, a good friend of ours, a uh, wonderful catechist is writing some original pieces for us that will run each weekend about each Sunday of Lent. And those are going to be uh, very, very good. So um, Douglas, Douglas is a really fantastic catechist. Um, he's now back in, I almost said Minnesota, but he's in, he's in, he's in Wisconsin, right? Um, uh, I thought he was in Minnesota. <laughs> okay, Minnesota. Okay. I'm going back and forth on those two states. Um, no, I but you're Douglas, in the West Coast thing like well, all those states in the middle are all the same right yeah it's like people ask me to point out ukraine or wisconsin i can't find them on a map either <laughs> well, being um, a midwestern douglas, boy i can tell you there's a big difference between wisconsin and uh minnesota, minnesota. So, yeah. yeah 
Um, but but Douglas was for many years at the Augustan Institute. Uh, and now he's uh, doing adult running adult catechesis at a parish. And um, so this will be this will be really great um, for for Lent. Um, I think it's good. You know, we we try to run at Catholic World Report. We try to run a number of pieces uh, on a kind of consistent basis on the spiritual life and on theological topics and and so forth. Because I, I think it's good to be really you know we need to be learning our faith more. And I people readers really respond positively to that. So uh, that's well, another yeah, thing. I, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second again. Do a little inside baseball explanation. Uh, for uh, people that don't know designated hitter rule and all that, uh, you talked about liturgy of the hours. What is that? Because a lot of people, again, a lot of ordinary Catholics, although the Second Vatican Council sort of encouraged uh, more of an acquaintance with the liturgy of the hours, even among ordinary Catholics, a lot of ordinary Catholics go to Mass every Sunday, will have not have any idea what you're talking about. Well, I think um, maybe going back a few decades, the the, uh, the divine office or, or liturgy of the hours would be something that we would kind of see as something that the the religious or the priests would do, right? But it's somebody who said the council really encouraged it, and this is basically the year-round prayer, daily prayer of the church, and. Um, you know, prior to internet technology, it, it'd be very, very expensive to find a set. It's usually about a three or four volume set of the Liturgy of the Hour books, and they can be rather expensive. But now there's a number of different apps and different ways you can do this uh, through online resources, which is very helpful for people who don't have, you know, uh, a huge budget for these kind of things. And also it's good with the, I think, with some of the apps, and I'm not familiar with a lot of the apps, um, but they can help you get through because it is kind of uh, it is kind of complicated it's to get used to, you know, if you've got certain prayers, you have certain readings um, and so forth. Uh, and of course, there's some jumping around depending on the, on the season and what's going on on the church calendar. Um, so that can be very helpful because it can be kind of intimidating if you're not if you've not done it before, I think. Um, so I know that there's some different um, apps and online uh, resources for that. Um, and I know that uh, Ignatius Press published a book uh, not too long ago about, uh, I should know the title of that, but it was about how the Liturgy of the Hours really changed the life of the author. It was, it was about four or five. Is that ringing a bell or am I totally? Yes. Um, yeah, you, you caught me off guard. Um, In fact, we, we at Catholic World Report, I'm pretty sure we did a, a interview with the author. It's a great book. I really enjoy the book. It's been useful. It has to do with sacred time and liturgical season. Sacred time, yeah. yeah. I'll call it and, up here and, while we're talking. And I'm, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. She, she did a great job. Um, well, since Ignatius Press only publishes one or two books a year, I would think that yeah. you would. <laughs> well, and you caught me off guard, Carl, you know. Um, we, we can look it up. Oh, oh Numbering book. My Days. Numbering My Days, that's it. Yeah, you know, yeah. A clever title. Yeah, that was, that was great. And I... Um, how the liturgical calendar rearranged my life. Is it pronounced Shane? Heedy? Chaney Heedy? Uh, it's an interesting uh, first name. C-H-E-N-E. -E. Yes, I believe so. Um, anyway, I remember reading some of that when it came out, and I, I was really struck by how the author, um, the emphasis there is when you start 
when you start praying the liturgy of the hours, um, it, it really makes you rethink how the, the calendar. I mean, we're so shaped, obviously, by a quote unquote secular calendar. So when you start following the calendar of the church, and I think, you know, all of us try to follow, have to follow both or try to um, just because of reality and so forth, but jobs and so forth. But uh, yeah, it really I starts, you, you know, it, it helps you to th see things differently. Um, fo it helps you focus. I think that's the thing about it. something that Father Fox in his Catholic World Report article about this really talks about the focus and then entering into the worship of the church. Mm -hmm. And how this is a way during during Lent to maybe enter more deeply into worship. So, um, yeah, yeah, very interesting I, piece. I think, yeah, I think Shane, I think he um, he was speaking more broadly about the liturgical right. whole liturgical experience, liturgical year, the daily readings of Mass, various seasons and feasts of the Church. But the idea is that we have this sacred order of time that is part of what it means to be a human being because we live according to time as human beings. And that's not done away with, even though we think about, you know, our incorporation in life of Christ as participation in divine life of the Trinity and the Trinity's eternal and all of that. Nevertheless, there is a consecration of time, a setting apart of time and orienting, orienting time and our use of time towards the eternal. So that, that really is the, the notion of liturgical time. And the liturgy of the hours punctuate the day uh, with prayers, particular prayers, especially the Psalms and scripture readings and other prayers uh, <clears throat> to consecrate the day, to make the day be ordered to God. Uh, yeah. So I think it's great that, um, that we're you know, trying to utilize the Catholic report to convey that uh, consecration of, of time in, in prayer. Okay. Yeah, I think it's and an example of- and People can get Numbering My Days at Ignatius.com. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, oh, great I book. I forgot to title your book. Great book. Yeah, I think it's uh, um, it's helpful at a time when a lot of people are, I mean, all of us in different ways are looking for, I think a way to uh, uh, engage kind of these some of these treasures of the church that sometimes we don't access as much as we we could right i mean there's a lot of things um, this is just one one good example um so i was gonna mark shift i was looking actually here at catholic world report and i i saw these two uh two headlines these are actually uh news briefs from catholic news agency um so one it tells you the, the kind of world we live in right now we got the german catholic bishops leader calls for a change to the catechism on sexuality. And I, I saw that, I saw, I thought, haven't we seen this headline four or five times already this year? <laughs> um, and then we have, below that, we have experts respond to President Biden, biology and theology agree that human life begins at conception. And that, of course, is a response to the fact that uh, on Ash Wednesday, after having received ashes, President Biden was asked by an EWTN correspondent about how he can reconcile his Catholic faith with his support of abortion and the president. And I paraphrase this something. I don't want to get into theology with you. And immediately I, I there's a little bit of a fear on um, Twitter and other social media. Uh, I was among those who tossed my hat into the Fuhrer ring saying, this is not, 
this is not about theology, right? right. I think this, is, and I think you said something, and, and Dr. Ed Peters and a number of others, and I think it's a point worth bringing up here. Um, this has been a line that's been used for decades by those who um, say they're Catholic, but then support in various ways, sometimes very overtly in their the way that they 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 vote and pursue policy, uh, support abortion. And well, you know, I'm not. I'm not, it's, you know, theology is above my pay grade. I'm not getting into theology. And I think we need to emphasize this is not about theology. Right. There are well, atheists. There are atheists who strongly denounce abortion to their credit. And they do so because they recognize scientifically, commonsensically, et cetera, that it is the killing of an unborn human being. person. Right. right. So, um, you know, that's that's a you know, a, a bit on that. And I, I, this, you know, it, it frustrates me. It, it goes back to something um, <clears throat> kind of related during the March for life events at the end of January, where I saw a number of pieces and you made a remark about this too, people saying, well, you know, if you're against abortion, then, then why aren't you out there helping, you know, these single mothers and why aren't you doing adoption and all this? And I'm thinking, well, people are, I, I mean, it's happening all the time. I, but that's what I call the Jimmy Carter argument. Uh, and dare I Why say, do you call it the Jimmy Carter argument because it lacks all validity and substance. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but further, no, but further, this is something that Jimmy Carter more than once in his various books. In all seriousness, he flatly states how upset and frustrated he is with people who say they're pro-life, but then as soon as the baby is born, they have no interest in taking care of the baby or helping the mother. And he says this, and I'm thinking, well, where have you been, Mr. Right. Carter? Where have you been? Um, do you not know about all these different crisis pregnancy centers? Do you not know about all the different adoptive families, uh, a huge number of them Christians who right. go out of their way? Um which is which they is not to say them. that you know everybody who's pro life, right, uh, is perfect about helping uh, mothers after the children are born, and so on. But but I, but the fact of the matter is, there's an awful lot that the pro life movement does to support both the child and the mother. Yeah, and um, I, I think uh, it may have been you, Mark, who made a, a point. I think it was on a Facebook or or Twitter about how. Yeah, you know, the pro-life movement in America is a political movement. There is a certainly a, a, a deep political aspect to it. We don't want to ignore that, but we need to look at different different aspects and parse out certain things about the quote-unquote pro-life movement. Um, I was very influenced in my late teens by my then evangelical pastor. This was a number of years before I became Catholic, who, as a young pastor, he got thrown in jail two or three different times for for protesting, not violently, but peacefully protesting in front of abortion clinics. He and his wife have eight children. They have, you know, they they walk the walk. They are, are great Christian examples of sacrifice, of, of so forth. You know, I look at, and then I, I also know of how over the years he has helped so many families uh, in different situations. So, you know, this what I see again and again is people say, well, if you're just pro pro-life and anti-abortion and you're not out there and they give a list you know fighting climate change helping the poor social justice it's like okay let's be realistic how many people who have lives and jobs and families are going to be able to do all 27 of these things right right um so for example i've never 
I've never marched in a pro-life march, mostly because of where I live. Um, Eugene, Oregon, believe it or not, is not a big hotbed for pro-life marches. Um, We do have a lot of other events on the other end of the spectrum. Um, I won't get into that. But, (laughs) you know, my point is uh, that argument keeps coming up. Jimmy Carter first, not he wasn't the first one, but he used it very strongly in a couple of his books, you know, written after his presidency. And it always really frustrated me um, because you it, know, it, it. I'm going to interrupt you just for a second because I'd like to make two points in this. One, many years ago when I was director of social ministries for the Diocese of San Diego, you know, I used to say that we dealt with every issue from abortion to xenophobia. And I know that xenophobia starts with an X, not a Z. But the, the idea was that it was a range of issues that we dealt with. And I remember... Uh, dealing with issues of migrant concern and migrant ministry. And uh, a lady who was very much involved with that at her parish, and she she was part of our migrant ministry, or migrant committee, migrant issues committee, which is very pro-life as well. And she told me about a conversation she had had with um, someone who was uh, you know, identified as a Catholic, was very supportive of migrant ministry, but was very critical of, of the pro-life movement. And for her, that didn't make sense. She said the same kind of, uh, the same impetus of charity and desire for a rightly ordered society, which we call justice, that motivated her to defend the right to life for unborn children and to support their mothers, uh, also led her to be concerned with migrants and people who were here, uh, trying to be part of this community and, and integrate into the community. And, and oftentimes it met with opposition. So for her, these things went together and, and she sort of put the, reversed the argument that you're describing, which is, well, if you're really what you say you are by being committed to pro-life, how come you're not doing these 15 other issues as well? She said, well, if you really say you're for uh, the newcomer, then why aren't you welcoming welcoming the newcomer in the womb? And uh, she said, I understand that not everybody can be activist about every issue of concern. We're going right. to prioritize and we're going to focus according to our immediate experience and skill set and things that we feel God is calling us to do. But we should always uh, have a wide vision for what it means to uh, foster charity and justice in society. So she kind of put this guy on the spot. She told the story. Um, and I, I feel that way too. I mean, obviously there are all kinds of complexities on certain issues. You know, you can, you can support in principle uh, something, but have a disagreement about the means by which that's brought about. But on the issue of abortion, it's not just Catholic teaching that abortion is wrong. It's immoral. It's also Catholic teaching that it's a social injustice. That is to say, when you have laws or you have a, a government that is supposed to protect the right to life for every human being simply because they're human, and you have uh, a government saying, no, we're not going to do that for unborn children, that's a social injustice. That's an inconsistency. And so a Catholic can't say, well, yeah, I'm personally opposed to abortion. I think it's a sin or it's wrong, or my theology tells me that it's a sin or wrong, or that it's sin and wrong. 
but I'm, I can't, as a matter of law and holding office, I can't uphold that conviction there because Catholic teaching is that, no, this is a social justice ethical matter. And so therefore, just as racism, obviously there's a theology that has to do with human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore racism is wrong, okay? But we, we can't say, well, I'm going to uh, not support uh, racial equality in society because that comes from my theological motivation. And if you call me <laughs> out on that, I'm going to say, well, let's not quibble about theology. I'm going to have to say, no, this is, this is dealing with the public order. And as a, as a human being first, I should recognize uh, the equ racial equality. But I also have motivation as a follower of Jesus to work for racial equality in society. So I'd say that to Mr. Biden. Yeah. And then and flip side, you mentioned the personally opposed approach. Why is abortion the only topic that that can be used on? Right. Why can't right. we use that on racism? Well, I'm personally opposed to racism, but, you know, I'm personally opposed to, uh, you know, name any kind of real grievous evil. Right. But I am not going to force my, nobody says that, but they say it's used, you know, Mario Cuomo, of course, is the famous example right. with, with uh, abortion. I, I, you know, we could go on on that, but I, I, I think that there's um, this notion that it flows from some kind of esoteric theological system. Right. As though prior, you know, outside of Catholicism, you know, no religious tradition or no philosophical tradition uh, would uphold that the belief that the uh, the unborn child is actually you know human person etc right. um, and I think it, I think a lot of it just depends on a a bias that a knee-jerk bias that certain people have against you know dogma or theology like it's some kind of nasty thing and also that it's just some kind of weird thing that this group believes as opposed to recognizing that historically uh, the vast majority of cultures recognize that it's wrong to to kill unborn children. Um, so, but we, you know, this, unfortunately, uh, our president continues to mouth this. He continues to support it. He's an ardent supporter of it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's why, I mean, I, you know, I pray for President Biden. Uh, one of the things that's really horrible about this whole thing is, as I said, I think I've said this many times in social media, the most prominent Catholic layman in the world is militantly pro-abortion yeah. rights. And that's a scandal, which is not to say there aren't other things that Biden is reflective of Catholic social teaching on, or at least you can make a, you know, the argument that, that, that that's a legitimate position flowing from a commitment to Catholic social teaching. Sure, there are those things, but there are also a lot of other things that he is at odds with Catholic social teaching on. And it's it's terrible that we have the, the most prominent politician in the world who is also the most prominent Catholic layman in the world. And yet he's taking positions, not on minor issues, but on grave social matters, right. fundamentally at odds with the Catholic vision of a just society. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. As we, uh, we've got a few more minutes here, Mark. I, I, I did want to kind of end on a little bit lighter note. <laughs> you get Mark actually, preaching. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up, I want to, I want to confess my ignorance to you and to those who are listening. Uh, you, I know you have a, a um, you have dedicated years of your life to uh, the comic book tradition. Um, <laughs> comic book tradition. 
You you know a great deal about uh, a certain aspect of pop culture. It's funny. Both you and I have different interests in, in terms of what might generally call pop culture. Uh, but I think you saw Steve Gradonis wrote a uh, really interesting piece for us on the new Batman movie, The Batman. The Deacon. Deacon Steve and it's titled Caped. Yes, Deacon uh, Steve, Stephen Gradonis. Is it Gradonis? Sorry. Um, I want to get his name right. Sorry, Stephen. Uh, who, of course, is, I think, we're one of the finest uh, movie reviewers out there, um, regardless right. of being Catholic or not Catholic. He's really excellent. Right. So this is titled Cape Crusaders and the Common Good. So it's really interesting. I learned a lot from it because, um, you know, I'm just I'm not I've never been a big, um, you know, superhero kind of uh, I'm not, I don't have an animosity. It just was not not my thing growing up. Um, but you grew up he talks Bundy about, and you probably weren't allowed to look at comic books. <laughs> well, there actually there's some truth to that. That's another episode. Um, wasn't allowed to read Chronicles of Narnia. Although I ended up reading a lot of things that I'm sure would horrify my parents if they they'd known. Um, he talks about the 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 roots of how Batman flowed out of Zorro, mm. which I I didn't know that. Um, um, and then it, his focus here is though on what what is the nature of the you know Zorro and Batman when you look at the different I mean there's obviously been a lot of different movies TV shows books comic books etc. And S Stephen's focus here is you know is is this about a a hero a savior figure or is this about somebody who inspires others as more of a someone to emulate? And uh, I thought it's a very interesting uh, piece on that because you know. I know some people are kind of dismissive of, of pop culture in this, in these terms, but I think he really nails uh, something here that's uh, worth pondering. Yeah. Um, and also just kind of considering, you know, why the continued fascination with these kind of solitary, you know, heroes, superheroes, et cetera. Um, so uh, that I, you know, it's very interesting, kind of a little di different piece. Uh, we do movie reviews, book reviews, obviously uh, I like to have, some reviews of, of, you know, popular movies at times, because it, I think it's good to show how we can as Catholics bring a Catholic sensibility, worldview perspective, and look at, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, however it is of certain. Now there's, I think there's some pop culture that's not worth wasting time on. Um, right. That, that can be a little bit subjective, but I think in this case, this is a very interesting. Uh, approach. Right. No, I think, I think it's a very good article. Uh, it's more like a review essay because he's dealing with things in addition to the new Batman movie, as you as you point out, talking a little bit about the backstory to Batman and, and Zorro. But also I, that that uh, tension between the the hero who does for and the hero who inspires others to do for themselves. And, and right. that's a challenge. And you're dealing with a heroic figure. Because, uh, you know, I think about not just Batman, but I, in, in the in the original Superman movie, the original uh, the Superman movie back in the 70s, you know, <laughs> uh, Superman's dad played by his real dad, you know, Superman's real <laughs> dad, uh, played by uh, Marlon Brando. Yes. <laughs> uh, tells, you know, uh, su the, the super Superman that he's to inspire others, you know, he's to let the, his leadership is to, to inspire others and not just simply to dominate and come in and, yeah. and bring about the right outcome. And you see a little bit of that 
in this discussion about Batman and the question of Zorro and, and, and to what extent, and I was thinking about this the other day, uh, because my wife and I were watching one of the Avengers movies and people are going to come away thinking, oh, you know, I'm a comic <laughs> obsessed guy. I'm not really. In fact, I, I saw, Oh, another Batman movie. Oh my goodness. We're going to do yet another Batman movie. But, but I was thinking about <laughs> this in, in, in there's a line in Nick, Nick Fury in the, in the Avengers movie where he talks about the Avengers as being a team that was intended to fight the battles that we couldn't and we being, you know, the non-superheroes, and there's that kind of savior mentality here. They're doing something we can't do. Obviously, extraordinary people, extraordinarily talented people, even just on a human level, uh, are important because they can be brought in to help address extraordinary problems. But at the same time, there is that component where we should expect leaders to inspire others to do what they can or go be even go beyond what they ordinarily would be able to do and extend themselves to do much, much more. So it's interesting that you brought this, this article up because I was, I was just reading this again this morning. I read it yesterday. I was reading it again this morning, thinking about this, this tension in terms of types of heroes. And, you know, I think our Lord is a hero who does, who fights the battle that we can't fight. Which he, did he does both, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he's the hero who inspires, and not just inspires externally. We look at him and say, "I want to be like him." That certainly is the case. But he also inspires internally by moving us along and inciting us to do what's right and to emulate him as disciples. So, that's an interesting discussion. Yeah, and I like the, the focus here on the common good because this is something we've been hearing a lot about over the last couple of years doing stuff. You know, you got to do this or do that because of the common good. And I think, you know, the, the essay takes that up a little bit about what is the nature of the common good. Um, but I think it obviously applies to kind of the political situation in that, you know, what are we what are we looking for in our political, cultural, social leaders? Are we looking for someone who's going to come in and just save the day and uh, you know, do the X, Y, and Z, or are we looking for someone who is going to lead in a different way? And I think, I think that gets at the heart of, of some of the core challenges we have right now in our, our country. Obviously we can't, you know, dive into that here, but I think that this, a piece about a Batman movie and Zorro, <laughs> you know, touches, it does touch on that. And it makes you think a little bit about, you know, what are we looking for? What kind of leadership do we desire? Um, what really is the common good? How should we go about pursuing the common good, rightly understood, et cetera? So, um, yeah, I think that's a you know a good a, a change of pace a little bit from some. I mean, it's obviously obviously there's some heavy issues there as well, but uh, a little bit a little bit lighter in tone than some of the things we've already already discussed here. Well, Carl, on that note, uh, we're going to take leave of our listenership here, and but we encourage people to. Continue to read Catholic World Report. They can go to, uh, I, I should know the web address. What's the web address? The web address is sub, uh, catholicworldreport.com, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to go to catholicworldreport.com and read uh, Ignatius Press's free online Catholic news journal. And people who would like to support Catholic World Report can go there and find out how to support it as well. Carl, thank you for talking to me today. I enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to having yeah. you back and 
Let's do this Thanks, again. Mark. It's always, always great. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.